Look at the book of Romans. If you can just keep in mind, as as we go through um, our study this morning, our look at the scriptures this morning, that the first five chapters, which in Romans we're up to the fourth chapter, the first five chapters of the book of Romans is is dealing with the gospel in in such a complete way, in a way that um, explains everything from the depravity of man and the state of man right through to salvation and what that actually means for us and how we can really truly live our lives. It's really good this setup over here. It challenges me to look all the way, I've got to look all the way around, make sure I see everybody. You know? I've got all the big seats over there. You know, that's the, they're the paid ones. The, the expensive seats, that's right. So let's look if we can at Romans chapter 4. going to be reading from verse 13, just to the end of the chapter. All right, read along with me. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath, For where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, which when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offences and was raised again for our justification." We go through our walk as, as Christians and there's some basic fundamentals that we often forget. Um, we try and focus on a lot of the details and yet the main thing, one of the most important things that we can be thinking about continues to slip our mind. Um, a lot of years ago I gave a, a bit of a conundrum, a little puzzle to, uh, to a friend of mine and it went like this. Um, I told him, okay, I want you to I'll try and work out. I'm going to give you a question at the end. And I want, you to, I want you to give me the answer. I said, right, you ready? And he said, yep, I'm ready. I said, okay, you're driving a train. And he goes, yep. I go, now, you're starting at the station and you get to the first station. You pick up 25 passengers, none get off. You go through two tunnels and over one bridge. 
before you get to the next station. Ten passengers get on, eight passengers get off. You with me so far? It's like, yep, got it. Okay. You take off, you get to the next station. But before you get there, you pass through three more tunnels. Okay? He's like, yep, it's got the same sort of look that you guys have got at the moment. <laughs> okay. At that station, you pick up five more passengers, but 20 get off. And he goes, right. I go, okay, you get to another station, you haven't passed any bridges, no tunnels. 40 people get on just before the last station, and none get off. And he goes, right, okay. So then, you finally pass through three more bridges. You go over three more bridges until you get to your final destination. He goes, right. Okay, you ready for the question? He goes, yep. Okay, what was the name of the train driver? <laughs> He's like, um, babe, you didn't tell me the name of the train driver. Do you want me to go through it a bit more again? And he goes, oh, I reckon I missed something. Okay, okay. You're driving a train. <laughs> we miss a lot of the information that God has for us because we're focusing a lot of the time on the details. God's made a promise. That's the title of the sermon today. It's the promise of God. And it's the promise that if we would believe in him, he will take us to that final destination. It's his promise to us. In the, in the text that we're looking at, the essence of Abraham's faith in this case was that he believed God's promise that he could make the impossible possible. Have a look with me at uh, verse 19. He says, And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. The doctrine that we're considering here this morning, just as this introduction, is that only God can bring life out of something which was dead. All right? The text says he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Only through Christ can the man who is dead in trespasses and sins receive eternal life. And it's only through Christ. What's interesting to consider is that God had actually seen fit to promise. You ever notice that God makes promises throughout Scripture and yet he charges us not to promise. He tells us not to swear by anything. He tells us not to swear an oath. He tells us not to swear on our Family, not to swear on the Bible, not to swear on anything. And yet God sees fit perfectly to promise. But not only to promise, Paul encourages us through the promises of God. I wonder why that is. Have you ever thought why that is? I mean, that's many times you sort of set a standard for your kids and yet you don't follow that same standard. And God seems to have a reason for this. In James chapter 5, he gives a, an indication of something here. He says, But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay, nay, lest you fall into condemnation. So we're charged not to promise. We're charged not to swear. 
And as I said, God encourages us through his promises. And, and we want to know why, why it is that we can't, but he can. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. <coughs> Excuse me. The Lord gives us an interesting, um, interesting reason, and I'll see if you can actually pick this up out of the text. It's Matthew chapter 5 and verse 34. And we've gone through this before with Pastor Frank going through the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And he says from verse 34, he says, But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Did you get a bit of a, an idea on why we can't promise? What does the text say? It's because thou canst not make one hair white or black. You see, only God has the ability to keep his promise. We can't even make one of our hairs white or black, yet he created you and everything else that's in this world. He created you and everything else that's in this world. In James, he also says something else. It says, Go to now ye that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain, making plans. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapour that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Brethren, we can't even plan for tomorrow with any degree of absolute certainty. Yet, he knows the end from the beginning. He knows the end from the beginning. You don't have the ability to keep your promise because you're not in control of all the elements that surround the promise that you're going to be able to keep. But God can bring the dead to life. And you hath he quickened who are dead, pass, dead in trespasses and sins, in Ephesians 2.1. He says, and you being dead in your sins... And the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened, that is, he's brought to life, together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was written against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. God has the ability not only to promise, he can promise because he is in control of all things. So if God has taken you from death to life while you were yet his enemy, can you believe that he'll keep his promise to preserve you right to the end? It's his promise, not, not ours. It's his promise. Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. These next three points, I'll give, you, I'll give it to you ahead of time. I've got a tendency of doing that so you make sure you don't miss them. The first point is the promise is sure. The promise is sure, stagger not. The second is the promise assures hope, often through trials. The third point is the promise reassures joy, that we might shine brightly. First point, the promise is sure, stagger not. Verse 16 says, Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. And not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. The Lord draws the contrast to ensure 
we understand how the promise might be sure to all the seed. Being sure means that it's certain. It's guaranteed. It means it's absolute. It means that it will certainly come to pass. In our postmodern age that we're living in at the moment, it, this seems to offend people because people are telling you all the time that you can't be sure of anything. Uh, who's to know? You know? How can you really know anything? Um, we, we see the uncertainty going around us. I mean, we're looking at one news channel and it says one thing and we look at another news channel and it says something totally different. We jump onto the internet and have a look at what's going on regarding similar issues and it says something different again. How can we be sure of anything? Our teachers are telling us one thing to our students in school and then we're actually seeing something completely different in reality. We got one government organisation saying one thing, another government saying something completely different. How can we be sure of anything? One minute too much milk is not good for you. The next minute not enough milk is not good for you. You have to drink low fat, but you can't really get to the low fat because they've now proven that the high fat one's the good fat. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm full fat milk. That's me. Has to be full fat milk. We're constantly getting these varying ideas. They're telling us how to raise our children. One person says one thing, another person says another thing. You know, they, they're coming up with ideas and understandings. We, we, and they've now come to the point, and they have been for some time now, that we are in a postmodern age. The postmodern age is relative. Sadly, we've got exactly the same thing within the Christian circles. And that's probably the most heartbreaking of them all. We can't know what the Bible really says. We can't know what it truly means. Ah, the Bible's changed. And forever we've got pastors and we have teachers telling us, oh, that word doesn't actually, it's not supposed to be there, it's an error, it needs to be this, and they give you the correct interpretation of the word. And in the end, the Christian says, well, what the heck do I need this for? I don't need this. Um, you know, this bloke here reckons he's got all the knowledge, you know. And so it gets to the point where we can't know anything for certain, least of all what the Bible says, least of all, as if, as if God had made it on purpose to make it obscure for us so we can't understand it. So today it's considered dangerous to actually tell people that ye may know that ye have eternal life. That's what John said in 1 John 5.3. Or that all the Father that is given the, has given the Son, that he has lost none, he says. And in, in John 18, 9, Jesus' own claim regarding those that are his sheep, he says they shall never perish. After saying this, the, the Jews picked up stones to throw at him. You know, we find it exactly the same. We're finding people picking up stones to throw at us because we're teaching that you can know that you're saved. We're teaching and repeating God's own promise. Nevertheless, the Bible here says it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. You can understand that if salvation was in any way dependent upon you, God's promise to keep you, God's promise to Abraham and to all his seed can't be sure. John Knox says this, he says, So long as we believe that everything depends on our efforts, we are bound to be pessimists. For experience has taught the grim lesson that our own efforts can achieve very little. 
there was a um, there's a theology that going around called conditional security. Um, an individual wrote a book on it titled Conditional Security, and it's been around for quite a long time. You know, you can know that something is wrong just by its very fundamental premise. If the premise itself cancels itself out, if it's self-contradictory, well, how can the idea behind it be right? Conditional security. Can anything be absolutely 100% secure if it's conditional? You see, it's, 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 a, it's a self-contradicting term. It's a self-contradicting phrase. Like, like you know, we've said it before, like there is no right or wrong. Well, is that right? You know, um, uh, political integrity. You know, I mean, self-contradicting. These are self-refuting terms. This is another one. The idea that our security and our salvation is conditioned upon our actions and our behaviour. And they can frame it whichever way they like. But that's not what the Bible teaches. If, if conditional security is true, what do we do with Israel? Now, the Bible says that, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Well, does that mean that Israel is not going to suffer trials? No, they're going to suffer trials. Does it mean that there's not going to be any threats against it? No, there's still threats against it. But he that keepeth Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. He keeps Israel. Man, you're talking about a nation that is one-tenth the size of Victoria. Get the picture of how, how tiny Israel is. Just to put it into a little bit more of a greater perspective. Um, Israel is around about 20,000 square kilometres. Egypt is one million square kilometres. Iran is 1.6 million square kilometres. Saudi Arabia is 2.15 million square kilometres. And that's not including Turkey, Yemen, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Libya, Lebanon, Syria, and a lot of others, all of which desire more than anything else but to have Israel pushed into the sea. They want it abolished. They want it obliterated. This tiny tiny little nation and it's not like God would put him somewhere in the South Pacific you know where, where it's not a problem over there because hey, it's just water all the way around you it's almost like God's trying to make a point you know by putting Israel this tiny little nation right smack bang in the middle of all its enemies he that keepeth Israel will neither sleep nor slumber if if it wasn't for the promise of God, do you think Israel would be around today? I don't think Israel would be around today. When you think of it historically, they were taken off and put into Babylon. They were there for 70-odd years. They then came back into the land. They retained their language, which was amazing. It was, it was, it was again, rebuilt again you know, in the modern times. They've been out of the place for nearly 2,000 years after Titus Vespasian came in and basically levelled Jerusalem after the death of Christ. And now they're moving back into the land. All right, they're not back in the land in, in belief, but they're moving back into the land. Name a world, um, a world ruler that is still around today. The Assyrian Empire, do you see him? Do you know any Assyrians? I know one, my accountant. She's Assyrian. 
I actually asked her, I remember asking her, I said to her, what nationality are you? She says, I'm a Syrian. I said, no, you're not. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, no, you're not. They don't exist anymore. She goes, you know, you're the first person that has ever said that. She's told people that, I'm, that she's a Syrian and everyone just says to her, Syrian? She goes, no, no, ah, Syrian. And she goes, no one's ever, ever understood that that's, that was a world empire. Babylon, world empire, exist around anymore? Greece, well, still exists as a nation. And Rome certainly does. But here we have Israel. God made a promise for the security of Israel. I love this psalm, Psalm 27. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When God is your rock, when God is your salvation, what else? What else do you need? What else do we have to fear? God's promise to Abraham was not contingent nor conditioned upon his ability. He considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Abraham's righteousness was imputed to him simply because he believed God at his word. Verse 20 says, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. If you are fully persuaded that what he had promised, he is able also to perform, then stagger not. Stagger not. The promise can only be sure if it is up to God and not us. So stagger not when you go through difficulties in this life. Stagger not when money fails, when illness takes hold, when there's a death of a loved one. Stagger not. Stagger not when you struggle with sin, particularly as Christians. Stagger not. If you're born again and you're bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's His promise to bring you home, to bring you to that destination. His promise, not yours. Stagger not. This is so fundamental. You know, I mean, we, we all wrestle with things within our life. And, and I know how many times I've, I've bowed my head and thought, Lord, I can't be saved. I can't be saved. Can a saved person do this? You know? And I have to. I have to go back to his promise. I have to not stagger at his promise. It's his work, not mine. It's his work to bring me home. My work is to trust him. To just believe him. To just believe him at his word. It's so simple. Just to believe him at his word. You know? And it's the only thing that gives us hope. That's what gives us hope. So turn and remember the Lord's promise. Turn and know that there is nothing too hard for him. Turn and know that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Turn, love, worship, serve and trust the one who, when we were yet sinners, died for us. Turn and know nothing you do or don't do can make infinite love love you less. Second point. The promise assures hope, often through trial. Verse 17 of the text, it says, As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Abraham knew 
that the same God who quickeneth the dead can call those things which be not as though they were. Only God can create something out of nothing. Only God can bring dead men to life. Only God can open a womb that has been closed for so long. God has made a promise. His promise assures hope. It assures hope. That's its intent and its purpose. The Lord knows we have trials and difficulties in this life. Uh, He knows how easy it is to, to lose hope. He knows it. This is the reason why he makes the promise. But a hope based on that which is assured. Look at verse 21. It says, And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Hope in Scripture is not, it's not vain. It's not wishful thinking hope. Okay? Um, Abraham was fully persuaded. And he had, therefore, hope. But please notice that this hope is often accompanied with trials within our life. I'm not sure why they come. But I know that they're there for a purpose. And the Bible actually tells us they're there for a purpose. Turn your Bibles to Romans. Book of Romans, you're already there. Move forward one chapter, chapter 5. I'm going to be dealing with some of these elements a little bit more next week. But I want you to see a reason for the hope. Verses 2 to 5, he says, By whom also we have access by faith into his grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Romans 12, 12 says, Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. It was, uh, it was amazing to me when I was when I was thinking about this aspect of the outline, and I was thinking about this in in the, in the scriptures, and and I'm driving and I'm and I'm thinking about the text that I'm going to be uh, they're going to be preaching on, and I was thinking about this hope through trials, and I was thinking, okay, I need an illustration. I need to I need to think of someone in the Bible that has hope through trials. And you know what? There was a name that came to my mind, and I, I don't know why. She got there, but she was there. And all I thought of was Naomi. Naomi in the book of Ruth. I thought she was really interesting because she says in, in, in the book of Ruth, she says, and she said unto them, call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Um, Naomi lost her two sons and lost her husband. I'm not sure if we know exactly how... They were lost. But she lost her husband and her two sons. And you know, it, it doesn't matter whether it's a new husband or whether you've been with him for 50 years. The grief in losing your life partner. I've never seen a grief so great. Never seen a grief so great. It doesn't matter whether your son or your daughter is already 30, 40, 50 years old. Or whether died out of the womb. I never see a grief so great. You, you never grieve as much as you do when you lose a loved one, you know? You know? Because they're, 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 they're part of you. And that is a tremendous grief. Naomi, Naomi's name meant <laughs> my delight. Name meant my delight. When she changed her name to Mara, 
And the name Mara means bitter. You know, the Bible talks about they went to the waters of Mara, the bitter waters, and the waters were made sweet by the tree that was, that was put in there. Why Naomi? It was really interesting. So I did a search on the word hope, and the word hope turns up 143 times in Scripture. The first place that a word turns up in Scripture is usually really significant. We always look at the first time a word. So if you're ever doing a word study, it's really important. Look at that word. See where it turns up in the word of God. Where it first turns up is often significant. So I did that and I had a look at where hope first turns up. It turns up in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 12, out of the mouth of Naomi. The first time it turns up, that blew me away. I love that. I love it when stuff like that happens. It doesn't happen all the time, but it's really great when it does. Have a look in the book of Ruth, please. If you can turn there, because <coughs> we're going to chat just a little bit about it. Book of Ruth, chapter 1. It's only a small book. So Naomi's, Naomi's speaking. Uh, it's a little bit in from the from the first verse, and Naomi, Naomi turns to her daughters after she um, realizes the death of her um, of her sons. You almost get the impression that they 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 spend a lot of time together, and there's two of them, and we know the name of one of them. We know it's Ruth. Chapter one, verse twelve. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight, and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes at the hand, as, at, that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. What, what's really interesting, when we look at that in light of what we just read in Romans chapter 5, that we have patience and the end of all that is hope, we get an understanding that the Lord often does have a hand in some of the grief that we might experience. The Lord often has a hand in some of the grief that we might experience. Ever heard the expression that the trees grow tallest in the valleys? We go through those valleys. We go through those valleys because we experience a great deal of difficulty within our lives. One form or another, and every single one of us do. We all go through difficult trials, different trials. The role of Christians and the role of the brethren is to weep with those that weep and to rejoice with those that do rejoice. This is why it's important to have brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's important to be able to share the love that you have one for another, that you can weep with those that weep, that you can understand their pains and what they're going through. So people, people die physically. But we also grieve those within our own families a lot of the time that walk away from the truth of the Word of God. That is also a grief. A tremendous grief, and we experience that. 
We rejoice in those that come back as if all of a sudden they've come back to life. And that's not unusual. That's not unusual. We see that also in the Bible when, with the, uh, the prodigal son. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Our role is to again pray, continue to pray for our family and those that we love. And we pray in hope, knowing that God is in control, knowing that he keeps his promises. So Naomi struggled so much and found herself yet in doubt, but her hope was ultimately restored through Ruth and Boaz. Boaz was the great-grandfather of King David. In the direct line of the Messiah, let's have a look at the end of the story. So move forward a few chapters to chapter 4 in the book of Ruth. Just verse 13 to 17. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife, And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the woman said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life, and a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child, and laid it in her bosom, and became nurse unto it. And the woman, and the woman, her neighbours, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed, and he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. We can consider so many people in scriptures that have, have hope. You can go through Hebrews chapter 11, read that chapter. It's too long for me to put it in today, but read that chapter and look at the people that have gone through struggles and trials that have hope. Let me read this passage to you. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul gives a wonderful summary of his tribulations, the struggles that he goes through and that he's gone through. Through his own struggles, we can have hope because he brings such wonderful clarity to it. So if you're making notes, it's, 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 chapter, it's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, um, chapter, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. He says, We then, as workers, together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no offence in anything that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labours, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armour of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honour and dishonour, by evil report and good report, as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. What a wonderful passage of scripture. What an incredible truth and what a contrast 
that through trials and through tribulations and through difficulties, we can still have joy. We can still live victorious, hopeful, full, complete, perfect lives before the Lord. Why? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what He has done, what He's secured for us. And all we have to do is believe. Believe the promise of God. And our hope is assured. We have something to look forward to. In Hebrews chapter 6, there's this wonderful little passage there in verse 19. It simply says this. It says, Which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. Well, think of hope as an anchor for the soul. We read not long ago in the second chapter of Romans the effect of those who will be judged according to the law. Romans chapter 2. Sorry, this is the... Where are we? We've spoken about hope. We're now up to joy. So this is the third and final portion. The promise reassures joy that the saints may shine brightly. It says there in verse 15 of Romans chapter 4 that we're looking at the text... It says, because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. The language and the choice of words in this verse is really important. And in, in this passage, it works so carefully to ensure that there's no possible contradictions anywhere in the scripture. We see in the previous verse, in verse 14, it says, For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Well, why is this? What's, what's the role of the law? Well, verse 15, the beginning of it says, Because the law worketh wrath. The law works wrath. We read in the second chapter of Romans, chapter 2. If you wanted to flick back there, you can. Chapter 2, verse 5 says, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart. Impenitent. You know that word impenitent? What, what an incredible word. You know what it means? Defiant unremorseful, unapologetic, impenitent. So the penitent man is the humble man. The penitent man is the one that knows his error, knows his faults. The impenitent is the one that probably recognises it, but are defiant. Treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. So the text that we're looking at says, because the law worketh, Wrath. That's the role of the law. That's the role of the law. You know one of the reasons why people don't want to trust in God, don't want to believe in God? Do you know why it offends them so much, the thought that there may be a holy God? You know what it is? They don't want to be accountable. They don't want their life to be accounted against them. They want to completely ignore any hope of the law in order that they can continue to live the life that they want to live. Does it make sense? Oh, no, were you ever like that? I mean, did you? can you remember before you were saved, if indeed you are saved, that, you know, the idea of God sort of offends you? It's, it's uncomfortable to you? I mean, it brings a stirring within your heart. I, I, remember, I remember every time I heard the name Jesus... It was almost like a knife, just right, right in here, you know. And that's how it felt. It, 
I can still remember it. I can still remember it. Anytime someone said the name Jesus, it was like, oh, oh it just turned my stomach. It never happened when they said Buddha. You know? Well, it didn't. You know? It never happened when they, they mentioned Muhammad. It never happened when they mentioned Joseph Smith. You know? But Jesus, something about that word just made me sick before I was saved. Why? Because it brings conviction. It brings conviction of the heart. And we don't want conviction. Thomas Nagel, he's a philosopher, wrote a book, The Last Word. It's really interesting. He's actually got a Jewish background. He was born in Yugoslavia and became an American national. Thomas Nagel, he says this. He says, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right about my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Is that amazing to you? I mean, what a perfectly honest response. So he understands. He doesn't want there to be a God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. So they run away from God. They, they, they deny him. They don't want him around. They want to ascribe meaningless to life. Meaninglessness. Life is meaningless. Do you understand that if there is no God, life has no purpose? Do you understand that? Is that a bit depressing? You know, when I was, when I was reading uh, these books in, uh, in physics and the like, and they would tell me about the earth, they would tell me about the sun, they would tell me that the sun is... It's going to burn out and, 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 you know, the universe is winding down and we're all going to go back from the big bang to the big crunch. And the universe is not going to exist anymore. You know, inside me, I actually, as a, as a young person, I was probably only about 19, 20 years of age, as a young person, it actually made me feel sick as well. I thought, I mean, this is going to be billions of years away. Why should it bother me? I'm not going to be around. And yet it made me incredibly sad. It made me incredibly sad because I understood that if there's no meaning to life, if there's no purpose to life, then what am I here for? I mean, to what benefit? What's the purpose and the meaning of life? So what ends up happening? When you take that logical conclusion through, it can really be quite depressing. Quite depressing. And really, really sad. So the atheist would rather be, and this is, this is the atheist that knows exactly what he's thinking about, the atheist would rather be completely miserable to try and avoid the law and ignore the fact that it's even there so he can continue to get on with his life having pleasure in sin. And I'm not making this up. Aldous Huxley, who's a writer and an intellectual, he was the brother of Julian Huxley. <coughs> Julian Huxley was a, as an evolutionist and was the first director of UNESCO. Um, Julian Huxley was the one that was known as um, Darwin's bulldog. Right? So he, he went full on with Darwinism. This is what Aldous Huxley said. Have a listen. Listen carefully. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness is essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desire was liberation from a certain system of morality. 
We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of these systems claim that in some way they embodied meaning, a Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. There was an admirably simple method of confuting these people and at the same time justifying ourselves in our political and erotical revolt. We could deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. When I was a kid, I used to play hide-and-seek. You know, you ever played hide-and-seek when you were a kid? I loved hide-and-seek. It was fantastic. It was the first game that I can actually ever remember playing. Natalie was a champion at hide-and-seek. I'd walk past the house and there's a, there's, a, there's a door and the door's about this big, you know, and, and as I oh, walk past, she pops out, you know. She loved playing hide-and-seek and scared the pants off me. I actually told her off. I yelled at her a few times because it nearly had a heart attack. Mate. But anyway, I used to play hide-and-seek and, and, and I honestly believed, I believed it, I believed it with all my heart that, that if, if, if I couldn't see them, they couldn't see me. So I remember the first time I tried this, right? I, I remember, I still remember, I was in the middle of the... <laughs> we live in a... <coughs> Excuse me. We lived in a cul-de-sac in a court. And I remembered standing in the middle of the court like this, you know? I was sure if I couldn't see anything, there's no hope anything could see me. And of course that very act ensured I would get caught. There is no law, there is no law, there is no law, there is no law. There is no meaning, there is no purpose, there is no meaning. I can go on ignoring the law as much as I can so I can live my life completely in sin. What would that ensure? It ensure that that individual would certainly be caught by the law. See, a blind man can't avoid a pit has no ability to be able to avoid falling into a ditch. But those that see have the ability to choose to walk around. That's exactly the same thing with the law. You know the law is there. You see the law working on your own heart. You see that it turns you upside down and it makes you unwell. You have only then the ability to deal with it. And pray that somehow God will see you through. Because I'm telling you, there's people out there that are praying for you that you would be saved, that you would come to the knowledge of the truth of God. So consider the contrast. For where no law is, there is no transgression. That's that text. So you're supposed to have heads down looking at the text. All right? Right, so the first part of it was what? It was the law worketh wrath. Okay? The second part is for where no law is, there is no transgression. While the impenitent heart falsely dream there is no law that they will be condemned by, <coughs> the penitent man who has trusted in Christ to the saving of the soul, the man who has believed the promise of God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, now has no law that he is ever to be accountable to. Did you get that? He has no law now that he is ever to be accountable to. Without contradiction, the next verse in the passage states, Therefore it is of faith 
that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. The glorious passage in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Freedom from the law that the world so foolishly seeks after in their own way, covering their own eyes, covering their own ears, and dulling their own minds, deceiving their own hearts, is achieved only through Christ. Do you see the contrast? Here they are with their hands over their eyes, not wanting to see the law, trying to run away from the law. That very action condemns them by the law. And then we trust in Christ and the law is gone. No longer is the law to be judge over us. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 18 says, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before, for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. That was Hebrews chapter 7 verse 18. You need to look that up. You see, one believes there is no law and will be judged by it. The other believes the promise of God and is freed from it. Only the man that sees can avoid the pit, as I said before. Isn't that interesting? In closing, turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. So it's saying that the promise reassures joy. It reassures joy. We don't have to live in misery anymore, guys. We don't have to live in a way that that is, is grieved. We have the promise of God to look forward to. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 to 14 is effectively the sister passage of what we've been looking at. He says this, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The promise of God reassures joy. That we might be lights in the world. If you're born again by the blood of Christ, then you are truly free. Your sin has been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. You have the ability now to live life to the full in joy and in hope, knowing that you're free from the law of sin and death. You've been given a new desire. It came the moment you believed the promise of God. Your desire now is to live a holy life, to live a righteous life. You want to be set apart. You want to be sanctified. You want to be true. That's your heart's desire. If you're not born again, you won't experience this. If you're not born again, you won't struggle with sin. If you're not born again or saved, then what I just said really doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't make any impact to you whatsoever. But if you're born again and you know the Lord, you know what this is saying is true. 
you know that your heart's desire is to obey the law. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting how before when we had no desire for the law and the law was our judge and would be our overseer and we'd be watching us every moment and we'd be running away from the law, we would not do anything nor have a desire to do anything with respect to the law. But now that the law is no longer our schoolmaster, now that the law is no longer our judge, now that we're free from the law, our heart's desire is to obey it. I love being born again. I love being saved. Everything changes. Your mind changes. Everything changes. Your heart's desire now is to trust in the Lord. The Bible says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The promise of God is sure. It assures hope and needs to be recalled time and time again to reassure our joy. Don't let the trials of life distract you. Don't let the details of life get in the way. Remember that story at the beginning? Remember the promise of God. Remember the promise of God. It's his role to take you to that final destination. You're no longer driving the train. God is. God is. 2 Timothy 1.12 says, For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him until that day. Trust his promise and your joy will be full. Let's pray. Father, how much we thank you for your loving mercy and your grace. How much we thank you for the promise of God. So many are the promises of our Lord. So many are the promises of God. Now this morning, dear Lord, we've only focused on one. And I pray, dear Father, in every way that you would ingrain that promise into the hearts of every believer that's here, that they may know the love and the joy and the truth of God, that their hope would be assured, and that in every way their joy would be reassured, that they would live lights as lights in this world, and that they would share the gospel of grace to all the world. I pray, dear Father, and ask you that you would help us through our own trials, through our own tribulations, through our own wrestlings with the flesh. And I ask you, dear Lord, please help us continue strong in faith that we would stagger not at the promise of God through unbelief. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray for them. I pray for he or she that they would come to you and know the joy of God and stop running from the law. And know the joy and the truth and the hope that they can have within their life. That if there was anything to happen, dear Lord, even now, that they may have an assurance of joy and peace within their lives. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for this message. I pray, dear Lord, that you'll continue to help us grow in the knowledge and the love of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.